Well, I wonder what you made of that as Laura read it. I must admit, when um, I began to prepare, I, I thought, what on earth are we going to say about that? It's, um, it's quite a striking story, um, sort of swashbuckling adventure, a little bit um, un-PC, maybe. Um, I think it's meant to be funny in the way that it's written. But what are we supposed to learn from it? Well, I think the writer's point, both in this passage and in the book, is that we need a hero. Apologies to Bonnie Tyler. We need a hero. I think that's the point of this passage and the book as a whole. Let me lay out a few reasons before we look at the detail of the passage. First of all, I think this is the point that's made by the cycle in the book of Judges. Um, Andy was explaining a couple of weeks ago when we started in the book that there's this kind of cycle in the book. I'm going to have to out of the way of this, um, that the people of Israel, they forget about God, they turn their backs on him, they serve other gods, they look elsewhere. In his anger, he gives them over to serve some foreign power. Eventually, after a time of suffering, they cry out, and God hears them, and in his grace, he raises up a rescuer, and the rescuer saves them, and then the people have rest for a period of time until... They turn away from God again, and the whole thing starts again. And you'll notice in in the cycle there how it turns every time on the rescuer God raises up. The message of the book is, we need a hero. Um, Secondly, if that's the cycle in the book, also the structure of the book shows us the same message. There are three parts to it. And a couple of weeks ago, Andy showed us the first bit where the wheels begin to come off for Israel. They they stop listening to God. They stop trusting him. They stop obeying him. They start to go easy on the evil Canaanites instead of driving them out. And the event that's mentioned twice in that section is their loss of Joshua. He dies. The great leader, he dies. And that's mentioned kind of as an explanation of why things had begun to go wrong. It was when they lacked a leader, a hero, that things began to fall apart. And then in the middle section, there are the 12 judges. That's the meat of the book. There are six, six major ones with a bit more airtime and six minor ones who just get a mention. But again, it's all about the heroes. That's why the book is called Judges. And then in the final section, in the end... There are no heroes, and that's kind of the point. This is the low moment for Israel. This is the passage that I think, honestly, we'll struggle to read out in public as Israel wallows in dreadful sin and civil war. The Lord is barely mentioned, and again, that is indicative. And through that final section, there is a refrain. Please could you look at the very last verse of the book, the very last verse of the book of Judges, This is a a refrain that comes four times in that final part of the book, in the epilogue. The very last verse says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that comes four times, like I said, drawing an appalling portrait of what happens in Israel when there is no king, no leader, no hero. So the cycle and the structure of the book. And then thirdly, this point is also made by the position of the book in the sweep of Bible history. So if you go one more page on, you'll reach Ruth, which uh, that's what comes next in the the history of the Bible. And Ruth is about, it's the family background of 
the man who would eventually become um, the monarch uh, in Israel. If you look at the end of Ruth, it's a family tree. Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Israel had no king, and it was awful. But God was raising up his servant, the King David. And then Samuel, the next book that you can see there, is the story of how that monarchy was established. Israel was a complete mess without a hero. And so God raised up his servant David. So I hope that all makes sense. We can go back to Judges now. Uh, Judges 3. I hope that makes sense, those reasons. It's saying that we need a hero. And so for us, if that's the message of the book, that really helps us to learn from it. Because the book of Judges is pointing us down the years of Bible history to the hero that we need. The ultimate hero, the perfect hero, the one that God had promised. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Because he's the end of the line. God raised up judges and they gave the people rest for a period of time. But they could never do a proper job. And even David, when he came, he wasn't the ultimate hero. And so the story in the Bible goes all the way forward until we reach the Lord Jesus. He is the hero that we need. At the question and answer session last week, if you were here for that, somebody asked, why did God spend so much time in all this Old Testament history? Why did he he linger so long before we got forward all the way to Jesus? And that's a fair question. If Jesus is the climax, why not zoom forward a bit and get to him a bit more quickly? Well, here's the answer. All this Old Testament history is laying the groundwork. It's the background so that when Jesus comes, we understand him. We understand our need of him. We understand that he is the hero we've been waiting for, longing for. We understand that we need someone to lead us and to rescue us. That's what this book does. Judges, it leaves us longing for Jesus, the true hero who will do a proper job, not just for one more cycle, but eternally. So this book, this book of Judges, is about Jesus, saying that we need a hero. It's pointing us to him. But it's also a book about us. If you um, stick the cycle back up again, the other thing that's striking is why the people need a hero. Why do they keep on needing a new hero? Because they keep on turning away from God. They keep forgetting him. Remember I said there were um, six major judges in the book, the six large stories. Well, they all start the same way, exactly the same way. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you look at if you look at your Bibles, you can see that in uh, chapter 3, verse 7. That's how that story begins with Othniel. And then 3, verse 12 with Ehud. And then if you look on to next week, chapter 4, verse 1, exactly the same. Chapter 6, verse 1, exactly the same. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 6. And chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's why the book is so tragic. And in some ways, it's so annoying and frustrating. Because you think, well, these people just can't help themselves. Well, they never learn. They keep on sliding backwards into sin. And the shock of this is that they are meant to be a picture of us. These weren't pagan people. These, weren't, these were the people of God. 
the ones that he had rescued out of Egypt, the ones that he had brought into the promised land. They knew his promises. They knew his faithfulness. They knew about his laws and his commands. But they just can't help themselves turning away from him time and time again. There's a kind of madness in them. They can't help it. They go astray. In his teaching, the Lord Jesus said things like this. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. What does that mean? This is what it means. We see it in the book of Judges. It helps us to understand. We see. And so, this book is holding up a mirror to our lives, inviting us to think about our own hearts. Are we like them? There's something broken about us that we can never master, but that will master us in the end. We need a hero. Well, that's the message of the book. Now let's have a look at these three stories and see how, how they lead us into that. Um, <coughs> excuse me. There are three judges here, um, a couple of major ones, and then one minor one. And the stories are fantastic. First of all, there is Othniel. I'm calling him Othniel the Ideal. If you look down, you can see the cycle starting in verse 7. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot him. And so in his anger, he sells them into the hand of this, uh, this chap with the unpronounceable name from Mesopotamia. Now, you need to remember from chapter 2, verse 17, in the shocking language, uh, the issue here is spiritual adultery. Because the Lord and Israel had promised themselves to one another in faithfulness. But Israel keeps on looking elsewhere. And so it's as if God says to them, well, okay, you think that these other nations and their gods are more attractive. Well, here's eight years of what that's really like. And it was awful. God hands them over to their enemies. And it was awful. They were oppressed by the Mesopotamian overlords, heavy taxes, the threat of violence. And so, in time, they cry out. Verse 9, you can see that there. They cry out. They felt, and they admitted their mistake. Or maybe they admitted it. This word, to cry out, it can mean a cry of regret and repentance, or it can just mean a cry out of suffering. Either way, the amazing thing is that God hears them. Even though they had abandoned him again, he would not abandon them. He is a God who hears those who cry out to him. And then he acts, verse 9. He raises up Othniel, puts his spirit upon him, and Othniel goes out and he smashes the Mesopotamians. And Israel is liberated, and they have rest for 40 years. Now that's the story of Othniel. But why is he Othniel the ideal? Well, what I mean by that is that he is everything a judge and hero should be. He's what we would expect. He looks the part. Um, For starters... He's from a famous family. Uh, Twice in the passage, we're told about his famous uncle. Um, So you see that in verse 9. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, that man, he he was a famous Israelite. It was Joshua and Caleb had been... uh, um, two of the spies sent into Israel, sorry, um, 
into, into the promised land in Moses' time. And all the other spies had come back and said, it'll be too hard, we can't invade. But off, uh, Joshua and Caleb made a minority report. They said, look, let's trust God. He's promised, it'll be fine, let's go for it. But the people didn't go for it. And that's why the Lord kept them wandering around in the desert for 40 years until all that generation had died out, all apart from the two good guys, Joshua and Caleb. So this guy, Othniel, he's from a famous family. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've ever had that, where you meet someone who, who's in the army and you find out that their um, forebears for various generations have been, they fought at Waterloo and on the Somme and D-Day and you think, well, that's not fair. This guy's got hero genes and it's just, it's in his DNA. Well, that's Othniel. He's Caleb's nephew. And personally, it's not just his family, personally, he lives up. Um, to the reputation. Back in chapter 1, if you remember, it's just a little detail there. Um, Caleb says that his daughter can marry the man who attacks and conquers one of the Canaanite cities, and it's Othniel who steps up and does the job. He is everything a hero should be. He probably had square jaw, big biceps, blue eyes, six foot two, all the rest, the complete package. He, he's a good guy. He looks the part. And when he confronts his enemies, there's no subterfuge, there's no sneaking around. He takes on this Mesopotamian guy um, head-to-head, a fair fight, and he smashes him in battle. He is the ideal. And the other reason for saying this is linked with how the story is told. It's very plain. The writer just runs through the story. um, With all the other major judges, there are elaborations They talk about the foibles and the escapades of the different judges. But Othniel has none of that. It's like he's the pattern. He's the exemplar at the beginning of the book. He is the theme uh, from which all the others vary. He is Othniel, the ideal. Which means when we get to Ehud, there's a big contrast because Ehud is the unconventional. Verse 12, the cycle starts again. The people of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord. But this time... God raises up Eglon, a big fat man, it says, who's the king of Moab. They, he invades Israel with the help of um, a couple of allies, and he oppresses them for 18 years. Now, it's worth noting that um, that's a pretty long time, 18 years. For some of us here, that would be pretty much all we could remember, 18 years of being under the boot of the Moabites, their violence, the burden of their taxes, Eventually, the people cry out again, verse 15, and again, that's remarkable, again, God has pity on them. God is so patient. God hears those who cry out to him, even if it's not the first time, even if we are shamefully fickle, he is very faithful. And so God raises up a judge, but this time, this time there's no square jaw, there's no big biceps, it's Ehud who is a left-handed man. Now, why does the writer highlight that? It kind of seems incidental. Uh, I was going to say, I wonder if you can tell if I'm left-handed or right-handed. I wonder if you know that. I mean, I, I don't know. I think, I think my wife is right-handed, but I'm not even sure about that. It's not, it's not that big a deal, that's what I'm saying. So why, why does the writer highlight this? Well, I think in the past, it was more of a big deal. The, uh, the word um, sinister, that just means left-handed. In the past, I don't know, there was a bit more of a stigma to it. Um, Here, though, 
I think there's a, there's a kind of Hebrew joke that's going on. Um, he's the odd man out. It's Ehud. He's left-handed, but he's a Benjaminite. That's his tribe. And the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. The original, uh, original patriarch, Benjamin, um, he had been born to Jacob, his father, in his old age as a favorite to replace his brother Joseph, if you know the story. And it's a bit like we might say, he's going to be my right-hand man. He's going to be my right-hand man, Benjamin. Only this right-hand man is left-handed. There's something that doesn't quite work about him. There's something that's not quite right. Now, the other idea that's possible is that in in saying that he was left-handed, it could mean that his right hand was um, crippled in some way, whether from birth or through a mishap. Now, personally, I'm not so sure about this because at the end of the book, there are some more um, Benjaminites who are left-handed and they are the elite troops of their tribal army. They sound a bit like ninjas in the way that they're described. Um, And so certainly there, it just means that they're left-handed. But here, there might just be a suggestion... If you look at verse 29, when uh, um, when Ehud eventually leads the Israelites in battle and they kill the Moabites, the writer remarks that they were all, these Moabites who died, they were all able-bodied men. And there's just, just why why make a note like that? Well, maybe it's because Ehud wasn't able-bodied. And that would be part of the irony that this unconventional hero won the day in spite of his hand. I'm not sure about that, but there's certainly something a little bit unconventional, a bit off about Ehud, and we can certainly see that in the tactics he employs. He, he is sent, he, part of the group sent off to Moab to, to pay the tributes, it would have been silver or produce, and after they have dropped this off, he goes back alone, and he says to Eglon, the king there, he says, I, I've got a special message for you, and Eglon is intrigued. He sends his guards away so they can be alone and speak privately. And what comes next is a bit like James Bond, I think. He's been to Kew Branch, and he's been given his short sword with two edges, and um, it's strapped on his right thigh, because normally you'd have a sword on your left thigh so that if you're right-handed, you can draw it. But when they frisk him, he gets through, because they're not expecting a lefty. So he's on his own, he's with Eglon, and he says, I've got a special message for you from God. Here it is, and he stabs him in the stomach. And because Eglon's very fat, he shoves it all the way in, and the handle goes in, and the fat um, rolls over it. And it's um, a disgusting scene as the excrement comes out. And then I think we can imagine Ehud straightens his cuffs, and he makes a cheesy comment like, uh, I think he got the point, and then he escapes. <laughs> Now, verses 22 through to 26, they're worth noting because they don't really move the story on. And you think, okay, why has the writer put this in there? Um, it's an embarrassing scene with Eglon's servants. They, they waste vital minutes as Ehud makes his escape because they think their boss is on the loo. And he, he's been in there for ages, and they're embarrassed. They don't want to knock on the door in case they disturb him. And you, you imagine the two of them talking, you go in. I'm not going in. But he's been in there for ages. I don't know, maybe he's, I I don't know, you go in. No. Why has the writer given us this detail? Partly, that's what makes a good story. 
I think the point, though, is that it's, it makes us smile. It makes us even laugh at Israel's enemies, the ones whose gods Israel had turned to and whom Israel had served for 18 years. Now, once Ehud is back behind his own lines, the story becomes a lot more conventional. He rallies his troops. They seize the fords. They slaughter the enemy. But the victory is based on this unconventional, this sneaky, unthreatening, left-handed assassin. And Israel has peace again for 80 years. That is Ehud, the unconventional. And then, finally, Shamgar, the obscure, who is, well, obscure. He, um, he only gets a verse right at the end of the chapter. We're not told anything about him other than that he's a good fighter. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which is a bit unconventional again. An ox goad is um, a cattle prod, a stick with a pointy metal bit on the end for making the cows go in the right, uh, right way. Any normal leader would have used a sword, but maybe Shamgar was a backwoodsman. Maybe he's a farm boy. We're not told. He's obscure. And yet he too saved Israel. So what are we to learn from all this? I mean, there's the stories, and they're interesting. It's good to read. But what are we supposed to learn from this? What spiritual benefit is there here? Well, we need to go back, I think, to the big themes that we were talking about at the beginning, the big themes of the book. First of all, this is a passage about our great need. Our great need. Judges says, And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil, in the sight of the Lord. Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It is a dreadful thing to turn away from God, to put other things before him. It doesn't seem like a dreadful thing a lot of the time. Sin or self-direction, idolatry, seems very attractive. I just want to be normal. I want to enjoy myself. I just want what I want. And where's the harm in that? But there is great harm, because the things that we choose to put ahead of God will always oppress us in the end. The New Testament speaks about God handing people over to the things, the sins we love. When, like Israel, we prefer other things, put them ahead of God, the horror is he lets us make that choice. In fact, he confirms our decision. He hands us over into what we thought we wanted, but it turns out to be slavery. Now, that's true of bad things. I guess maybe you're thinking of um, obvious examples like addictions to things. But it's also true of things that in themselves are not bad. Think about the work we do. Work is a good gift from God. It's part of his created order. But when we start to put that ahead of God in our lives, that is something he can hand us over to When my work becomes the source of my identity, my security, my work, quickly it takes on a very unhealthy place and power in my life. I reach the point where I I must work longer and harder. Uh, I'll sacrifice for the sake of my work. I'll harm my health or my family life. It's such a common story, isn't it? And a tragic one. When we put something ahead of God and it takes over. Well, what about consumption? When the things I buy or have or eat become, instead of God, the source of joy and satisfaction for me, 
well, I find that I need to have more and more and more, and I'm not grateful for the things that I have because I see the next thing and I want it. A restlessness creeps in. It's slavery. The things we flirt with and pursue ahead of God will suck us in. And even when we learn this kind of lesson, and even when we learn it the hard way, that's not to say we won't repeat the mistakes. Because like Israel, there is a weakness in us. This is why so many of our biggest hurts and problems in life are homemade, aren't they? They're self-inflicted. There is this madness in us, the addictions, the compulsions, the lack of inner peace and order. Of course, it shows up very differently in all of our different lives, depending on our personalities and proclivities and circumstances. But it's not fun. And Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If you're not yet a Christian, I wonder what you make of that idea. Or if you are a Christian... I wonder what you make of it as we hold up the mirror of this passage. Can you see your own heart in that cycle? You read the passage and you think, if only Israel would learn. If only they could remember. Then, If only they would remember that they need to keep on sticking with the Lord. That it it doesn't pay off when they look elsewhere. It always ends badly. They should know that by now. If you don't drive out the Canaanites, they'll oppress you. If only they would learn. If only we would learn. I say that for myself. Too often we're like the Israelites. Things are going well. We get complacent. We forget the Lord. Things go badly. We cry out. We come back to him. He's gracious. But we do it all again. We keep putting him in second place, whether behind a career. Excuse me behind the work we do, or some relationship, or leisure, or money. It seems like that would be the way of happiness, and security, and contentment. But it never quite works out that way. It never does. Never. Never. So this is a passage about our great need. And when we stop seeing ourselves this way, as those who are prone to forget, when we stop Knowing this about ourselves, when self-confidence begins to rise, we're heading for the next fall. But this is not, at the end of the day, this is not a bad news passage. This is a good news passage. Because as well as telling us about our great need, it's also telling us about God's great hero. Jesus didn't look much like a hero, He was much more of an Ehud than an Othniel. He didn't look the part. He was conceived under dubious circumstances, born into poverty in Nazareth, where nobody comes from Nazareth. He was a nobody. And as Isaiah had prophesied about him, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we be drawn to him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his stripes 
we're healed. God has raised up a person, a hero, who can save his people from sin, from slavery, and even from themselves. These judges point us forward to the Lord Jesus, the one who said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus came to break the cycle, albeit through the most unlikely and unconventional of victories, because it was on the cross as he died that he paid the price for sin. And as he rose again, that he broke the chains of evil and death which had held us. And then as he poured out his Holy Spirit, a new birth, something that can change our hearts. And today, what does he say to us? He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Not just for 40 years, not even for 80 years, but eternally follow me, fight on my side, and be truly free. This is the offer that he holds out at the start of the Christian life. Maybe you've never approached Jesus in that way, as life's great hero. Well, that's what he says to you this evening. Come to me, and I will give you freedom. I will give you rest. But it's also an ongoing thing. There is a moment when Jesus rescues us. But we also need to keep on coming back to him. And maybe some of us here feel like we've been following that cycle. We stumble. We get up again. We fall a bit harder. We get up again, but it takes us longer. We go back to God, but only just Well, it's a great opportunity that we have now to speak to Jesus about that, to ask for his forgiveness, to ask for his help, to ask for his spirit, to trust him again as your hero, the hero that we need. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask for your help to consider our own lives and hearts honestly. Lord, please help us to feel and and see honestly the, the pain that is caused by all the ways in which we turn away from you. The ways in which we don't really understand ourselves. Lord, we praise you for Jesus, for the hero you promised, you sent, the hero that we need. Lord, please help us to see in him the one who can break the cycle, who can help us, who can fill us with his spirit. Lord, help us to follow him this week, to come back to him, to stay close to him, that he would lead us through. Lord, please would that be true for us. In Jesus' name, amen.